The Business of Biotech is produced by Life Science Connect and its community of learning, solving, and sourcing resources for biopharma decision makers. If you're working on biologics process development and manufacturing challenges, you need to swing by bioprocessonline.com. If you're trying to stay ahead of the cell or gene therapy curve, visit cellandgene.com. When it's time to map out your clinical course, let clinicalleader.com help. And if optimizing outsourcing decisions is what you're after, check out outsourcepharma.com. We're Life Science Connect, and we're here to help. If you told me that Dr. Mark Dibel ever backed down from a public health challenge, or any challenge for that matter, you'd have to bring some very hard evidence to convince me of it. He's a guy who earned his place on the global stage, running point on AIDS relief in a presidentially appointed position during the mid-2000s after his early career was dedicated to AIDS research and clinical care. He's faculty co-director at the Center for Global Health and Quality, a professor in the Department of Medicine at Georgetown University Medical Center, and was the executive director of the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. He's also the biotech entrepreneur currently leading Renovaro Biosciences, a company developing therapeutic vaccines and therapies in oncology, HIV, and hepatitis, and one that's seen its own share of very unique challenges from leadership change to the integration of cutting-edge AI technology and more. Challenges Dr. Dibel has steadfastly navigated. I'm Matt Pillar. This is the Business of Biotech, and I admit that there's a lot of detail to be filled in there, but I'm thrilled to welcome just the man to do it, the Honorable Dr. Mark Dibel himself. Dr. Dibel, thank you for joining me. It's truly an honor, and welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Matt. Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. Uh, and, and I want to, we, we have a lot to cover, uh, but I want to get started by rewinding, like going way back. Uh, rewinding the clock quite a bit. Uh, I want to. I want to kind of get a feel for your professional trajectory. So, way back when you were uh, in your undergrad and contemplating uh, post grad studies, what was it that inspired you to pursue an MD? Uh, it's a great question, especially because I began um, trying to decide between a doctoral degree in philosophy or theology, and didn't take any science classes as an undergrad. Oh, really? Uh, wow. Read an article. <laughs> Yeah, it's not, it's not a career path necessarily to recommend to anyone and not easy <laughs> to do anymore. Um, and then I read an article about HIV in Africa and it just kind of consumed me and decided that I needed to shift and, and spend my life uh, fighting HIV. And going to medical school seemed like you're basically you become an advocate or you go to medical school. And it, um, if you go into medicine, you can do both. You can be an advocate and uh, do the medicine. So I decided to go in that direction. Uh, so I went to medical school specifically um, to join the fight against HIV. At the time, uh, everyone was dying. I did my fourth year of medical school in San Francisco, holding the hands of 17-year-old dying alone uh, because their friends and family wouldn't visit them. Um, and for those who lived through that in the United States, if you go to Africa, went to Africa at the time, uh, that horror was compounded a thousandfold in ways that is almost indescribable. Um, so I changed my career path and went into research. Um, what, because, what year was that? Sorry to interrupt you. Just, yeah, just no, for, no for problem at all. I went to medical school in 1998. Uh, okay. uh, uh, wait, uh, 1988. I'm sorry. I uh, graduated in, in 2002. 
um, then did my res residency in the University of Chicago in in um, in internal medicine, then and a fellowship in infect in infectious diseases at the National Institutes of Health. Now, the National Institutes of Health is somewhat unique. When you're accepted into a fellowship, you're actually accepted into a laboratory. Uh, you do your clinical time, but you're already accepted to go into a lab after your first year. That lab happened to be Tony Fauci's. So I met Tony um, in 1991, uh, or I'm sorry, 1994, uh, and then was accepted into his lab and started work with him. Uh, and we were doing work on uh, basic immunology virology. My first um, supervisor was Drew Weissman, who just won the Nobel Prize uh, for the COVID vaccine. Um, and I've stayed in touch with Drew. He's an amazing scientist and person, uh, as is Tony. Uh, and then I was running a section of Tony's lab, uh, immunology virology. We were doing work in Africa, studying antiretroviral therapy in Africans when President Bush had the bold idea to do something huge on HIV globally, he turned to Tony as any sensible president would. Uh, Tony and I were doing work in Africa, so I got involved with creating um, with a very small group in the White House. Tony and I were the only outside what became the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, uh, which I was then asked to run um, uh, as uh, Senate confirmed uh, appointee switch. I was still a civil servant, but uh, uh, in a political job. Uh, and that program grew from zero uh, and eight people, zero budget and eight people in the basement of the State Department uh, to six and a half billion dollars a year. Uh, it's now saved over 25 million lives. So it was uh, building a startup in the U.S. government. Uh, which is not the easiest thing in the world to do. Oh, like I like I said, Dr. Mark Dibel's not uh not not one to back down from a challenge. Yeah. I, I want to be before we get into that. You're, you you fast forward a little bit a little bit beyond where I wanted to go. I want I wanted to um, get a sense for uh, the the early work that you did in in HIV your academic years. Um, obviously, that was a completely different time as far as AIDS AIDS treatment and thera therapeutics were concerned. Uh, did did you practice for a time? Uh, I practiced uh, at NIH, so I was clinical at NIH. It's a unique environment. There's a, uh, an astounding cl clinical center. It's a real jewel in, in the American health system. Um, but basically, all the work you do is tied to clinical, basic and clinical research. So I, we all, um, in my group anyway, well, we did clinical work during my fellowship to, to be certified in infectious diseases and did went to various hospitals around the Bethesda, Maryland area in Washington, D.C., in Baltimore, uh, and then also was had a clinic, an HIV clinic um, at NIH, uh, but then did clinical research based out of that and then expanded that clinical research to Africa. So I was a clin active clinician with a license up until uh, I became the deputy U.S. Global AIDS coordinator running PEPFAR, at which point it became too difficult to manage uh, yeah. running of a growing, you know, <laughs> by billion dollars a year, uh, program and maintain a clinic. Yeah. You, you characterize it interestingly, when you say you were a civil servant, effectively, uh, developing or, or leading a, a startup within the U S government. Um, I mean, that's a that, that's an opportunity, uh, a, an uh, amazing opportunity on one hand. On the other hand, uh, you know, getting into politics and and government is, uh, you know, th there are plenty of folks who would say, you know what, uh, I think I'm going to apply my talents and expertise <laughs> a different a different way. 
tell me about your your mindset at the time. Like what uh, what inspired you to like obviously the prestige, right? But but what what else inspired you to to embrace that role as a civil servant uh, working within in the U.S. government? I actually never thought about the prestige of it at all. In fact, it was the opposite. Uh, it was more humility of um, being in being able to become involved in the largest international health initiative in history uh, for a single disease and the humility of the people involved um, in the U.S. government, in Washington, and in particular in the countries, visiting villages where people were literally giving everything of themselves for their neighbors. Uh, it was a very humbling experience. Um, uh, I think what drives people to do that, and I hope uh, you know, in this world today, people uh, don't think highly of government all the time, but the opportunity to do huge things you can't do outside of government um, and to do an international initiative across the Department of Defense, the Department of Health and Human Services, the State Department, the three biggest, some of the three biggest departments, what's called USAID, our development agency, the Department of Labor, the Peace Corps, to bring all of that together to support what was thought to be impossible by the public health community, the mm -hmm. scale up of antiretroviral therapy in Africa, where literally the vast majority of the public health community said it was impossible. The systems couldn't be built. There weren't enough healthcare workers. There were no, and they were right. There weren't enough healthcare workers. There were no logistics systems. There were no supply chains. No one had ever tried chronic delivery systems in Africa at all. There was no roadmap. Um, there was just a vision and a trust that it can and needed to be done. And so the opportunity to be involved with that was what motivated all of us. But it was a startup. I mean, then uh, when when we began, people just thought about how much money are you spending. Uh, the answer to any, what are you doing in education, health? The answer would be we're spending X amount of money. Not we're achieving this. Uh, it was very clear in direction from President Bush. Don't ever come back to me. Tell me how much money you need. Tell me what you're going to do and how you're going to do it, and I'll find the money. So it was mm -hmm. a bottom up results based approach bottom-up budgeting very common in business bottom-up management and top-down management uh, with command and control with very specific results that we managed against and got results reported every six months and managed against those results moving money moving managers basically bringing business across the u.s government um, and a startup um, um, mindset and that there's nothing harder when people say, oh, it's so difficult to run a public company. I'm like, try running a startup in the U.S. government hmm. across multiple agencies. You basically mm -hmm. have a board of 700 people, the entire Congress, the entire executive branch, the Department of State, um, um, and all the agencies. So uh, it's like having multiple divisions, but secretary level, <laughs> four-star general level as your division heads, uh, trying to push and then dealing with all the countries and the systems and each country is different. So you can't do a more difficult startup. Um, yeah. uh, and it was very exciting. And I learned a great deal about management. I learned a great deal about results-based uh, orientation. I learned a great deal about setting targets and meeting them. So we met in the US government on target, on budget, the results which saved now has now saved 25 million lives. Yeah. Yeah. And and similarly to running a startup, going into that appointment, I mean, you you had to know that your time there would more than likely be finite, which is often the case in, in yep. startup environments, right? Like I I've interviewed a lot of biopharma executives on this show, and uh very few of them have, you know, 20 plus year, 10 yep. years with, with the same company. 
Nor um, should so, you. Nor should you. Sure. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. You take opportunities to have have more different, better impact uh, and train the next generation. Try it. Yeah. You you should be putting yourself out of job. Change change the next generation to take over, to think creatively, differently, to have vision. Um, uh, No one person's ever going to be responsive. It's always a team effort and you have to bring that next generation up. Yeah. What were your thoughts, uh, you know, as that? Well, first of all, I'm I'm curious how that wound down. I'm assuming it wound down as a result of sort of a, your appointment uh, specifically wound down as a as a, uh, a administration change, a, pol- a political thing. Yes, I'm uh, I was actually asked to stay on by the Obama administration for a period as you know as functional civil servant. And then when that ended, I went back to NIH with Tony. Stayed there for a couple more months. Um, uh, and then decided to go over to Georgetown University uh, and leave the government um, very happily after having had the opportunity to serve. What what remains uh, of what you, uh, you know, again, uh, fully recognizing that the AIDS therapeutic landscape is advanced considerably, uh, thanks in, in large part to a lot of the work that, that you did, um, so, so I'm sure it's a different uh, effort now, a different organization. What, what sort of remains of the legacy that you began to build there? To build it's actually there? still um, very much running. Uh, it's now been 20 years, um, uh, with a total expended of one 110 billion dollars and 25 million lives saved. Uh, we reached two million uh, at the time of five years. It's a hockey stick. You know, you get started and you build the systems, and that was the key. You build the system so that you can uh, continue to enroll. Um, and we did these very careful calculations. Not that common in government. How much would it cost per person for the first six months, and then for the next, the rest of their lives? Um, uh, and so it's very economic driven. So that program is still existing. A lot of the the foundations that we laid are still very much in place uh, and has continued to grow and expand and build systems, uh, health systems that are now the foundation of health systems across Africa mm-hmm. and actually allowed them to respond to things like COVID, Ebola and other uh, diseases. Um, yeah. So uh, that very the, the legacy continues uh, in a very fundamental way. Very good. And when you when you made the decision to go back to to Georgetown, so you went went back to the NIH for a, a bit, and then and then went to Georgetown. Was it, that was uh, to pursue uh, c- continue your career in academia? Where you you decided? Yeah, NIH is functionally an academic setting. It's a it's a one of the best universities in a sense uh, in health in the world, um, if not the best. Um, and I'd gone through my government years in academia, except for the time uh, at the at the AIDS program. And I thought it was time to step back after 14 years in government uh, and move to a university base. Uh, I went to Georgetown uh, for all of my schooling, uh, undergrad, mm-hmm. medical school, um, and uh, wanted to have that base uh, rather than going back to NIH and build something new. So we started to uh, develop new programs around policy and uh, and impact in, in Africa, primarily around HIV and other infectious diseases, uh, and were funded by the Gates Foundation, by uh, uh, um, Hilton Foundation, other foundations to do important work. Ultimately, um, and now as a professor at Georgetown, while I'm CEO, which, as you know, is not that uncommon, uh, the programs I started and continue became grantees of the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief and the Global Fund, the organizations I used to run. So now I'm based was basically on the other side of those. Yeah. 
Yeah. Were, were you, uh, what were you teaching at Georgetown and what do you continue to teach? Um, I, I, te- I guess teach in general, uh, public health, public health policy, uh, the HIV and leadership and management. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, so the, the trend, as you mentioned, uh, not, not uncommon at all. Uh, to to have uh, we've had plenty of them on the show, academics who are also CEOs of biopharma companies. Um, what what was the I guess the first uh, I guess um, inkling of, of 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 motivation to join industry in your mind? Like what 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 was appealing there? Um, well, I've done a lot of other things, but I think what grabbed me is the same thing that grabbed me for uh, uh, PEPFAR, uh, an opportunity. So business can move in different ways. And I was fortunate to be introduced to some truly innovative technology uh, that could potentially radically change the landscape first for HIV and other infectious diseases, and then secondly, cancer. And really, my mission has shifted and the vision of Renovaro uh, has shifted to, and I believe this is possible, uh, freeing us from the from toxic chemotherapy uh, in our lifetime and to provide people with healthy living with cancer with healthy longevity um, uh, without toxic chemotherapy. And immunology is the basis of that. And my entire career has been uh, built on immunology and how the immune system functions. And if we can retrain the immune system um, to recognize tumors in a different way, not the way the current immune system is, because obviously that's failing. Uh, but if we can retrain it using effectively tricking the immune system, using the immune system and what we know about it, and building products, cell, gene, and immunotherapy products around that, we can shift the way the immune system works so that it can control uh, the tumors. To retrain the immune system uh, so that it can control the cancer without the need for toxic chemotherapy that destroys not only cancer cells, but all the rest of our, many of our other cells. And that's the vision that I think is fully achievable. Mm -hmm. And it's achievable by understanding the immune system and building products like the one we have, um, but also by including advanced technology like uh, AI uh, are really a lot of people talk about AI. Everything's AI now. Um, Really what it is is, deep learning and deep uh, algorithms based on massive data sets that are trained to identify things. In the same way we're retraining the immune system, you're using data, massive data sets, and using technology to train algorithms to find things that would be impossible for the human mind or simple experiments to identify. And when you put those two powerful things together, I believe we can achieve extraordinary things in in health, longevity, uh, and um, better lives, and that's what that's what excites me now. Yeah, yeah, and I've got some questions for you on that uh, here in a minute around your your recent um, merger acquisition. You can it's a, it's a, it, it's in process. It's a combination, so we're awaiting the proxy vote. So mm-hmm. the definitive agreement has been signed. That we're awaiting the proxy vote, which we believe will occur or hope uh, intend to have occur uh, early next year. Cool. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll dig into that uh, that technology uh, here in a minute, um, but. Well, before we get too far away from sort of that transitionary um, period, 
you know, one of the interesting, I, I think, juxtapositions in my mind is what you described earlier as a startup within the federal government where, you know, the Bush administration was basically saying, we're, we want to do big things. Don't tell me how much you're spending. Tell me what you need. Um, when you when you found uh, uh, a startup biopharma company, you, you don't get to go to the president of the United States and Congress and say, hey, where's that blank check? <laughs> you know, here's what here's what we need to stroke on that blank check. Um, so tell me a little bit about that, like that that learning experience for you, you know, moving from. Yeah. You know, I, I often interview execs who came from, you know, big, big, big bio uh, before they founded a company. And, and they tell me about, boy, you know, it was it was it was one thing being in a super well-resourced organization. It's quite another when you're you're scrapping for money and you're answering to a board and accounting yeah. for every dime. So tell me a little bit about how you how you reconcile that. Yeah, um, it gets a little bit to um, doing a startup in the U.S. government is far more complicated than anything in the public sector, uh, and including raising money. So there's a misconception that a president just decides to spend X amount of money and that's all. And then you're done. You just mm. go do it. Not how it works. There's an annual appropriation cycle. There's a Congress, which is functionally a board of 535 people. Um, and you have to defend why your program and why money for your program. And this is develop money going to Africa is more important than all the other priorities that the U.S. government has. And to go from to increase budgets in the U.S. government is virtually impossible to increase them by a billion, a billion and a half a year for a development program. Money going to Africa is unheard of and has never happened before and is probably never going to happen again. But we had to every, literally every year, fight for every penny. Mm -hmm. And that included within the administration, because the administration is not the president. Um, there's the Office of Management and Budget. There's the National Security Council. And they're all fighting for those resources. So you have to prove that what you're doing is impactful enough um, every year. Um, and you have to explain to them what's working, what's not working. Um, why this vision is better than every other vision sitting in front of them. I'll never forget being in the Office of Management and Budget, and we were asking for an increase of uh, $450 million, which at the time was 50% of our budget. Yeah. Um, and the, the president was governor, the president's brother was governor of Florida, had just walked out as we were walking in. And he was like, you know, he just asked me for a lot less. Why should I be giving it to you and not the president's brother who's the governor of Florida? Wow. So you have to, in ways that do not exist in the in the private sector, you have to explain every last penny and you have to convince the entire White House, your bosses at the State Department, in my case, and the entire U.S. Congress every year to do that. Um, there's nothing more difficult in terms of fundraising. And then on the global stage, when I ran the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB, and Malaria, we did three-year cycles. Uh, when I took that program over, it was collapsing. Germany, Switzerland, and several other large donors had withdrawn because of basically some difficulties in management. And it turns out there were a lot of issues with management. Not the managers were great human beings, but they were running a massive organization at the time, $3 billion, which was half of what I used to run. Um, $3 billion a year, but it was being run like a small NGO. So all the business systems had to be built and put in place. And I 
led that effort. But I was raising money from every country in the world, uh, every major country in the world. Um, so I had to go to every parliament, every head of state, every three years. Bill Gates was involved. You know, He massively increased his contributions while I was there, and he helped us fundraise. But you had to go every... And you to keep those three-year cycles, you had to go all the time and explain why your program and all the things governments had to fund was important enough to go from three to four and a half billion dollars and to restore confidence in four years. So it's a it is a very complex thing um, yeah. to do those things. That to be honest, in terms of fundraising in the public private sector, uh, is much 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 easier and much less complicated. Mm. E- even though, even though during during many of those years you had Bono at your side, I mean you had Bono. Bono is <laughs> Bono is a great great help, um, but and politicians love having pictures. Uh, but Bono's unique um, in that he can explain why things should be done. Um, uh, Bill Gates has that star power, but can also explain why things should be done. They were great allies, and you have to do this in business. You know, no business operates alone either. When we have our oncology products and when we have our AI products, you have to convince doctors and hospital systems why they should be buying your product and not someone else's. And that same effort, and that requires partnerships. That requires getting people who the oncologists listen to, who the hospital heads listen to, who the the insurers listen to, so that there's enough of a system. Even in the regulatory process, you want advocates out there pushing for what you're doing. Knowing how to build those partnerships, uh, that's how business succeeds rapidly. A lot of people think you end when you have a product. You start when you have a product. And you start long before you have that product to prepare the pathway so that when the product's available, you're ready to roll. And you're ready to move into a market in an aggressive and commercial way. That's that's very similar to the types of partnerships and things we had to build for both of the programs I was privileged to build and run. Yeah, that that element of of now bio, biopharmaceutical leadership, that that passion and advocacy, uh, was that in you prior to your your uh, global stage and and federal leadership experience, um, or or is that something you learned as you? I learned you... I learned that um, coming along because I was an academic. I mean, I ran a lab, very successful lab with lots of academic publications. I'd you know get flown all over the world to speak uh, and uh, on the science. Um, and that was a very different life. When I started running or taking over these programs, we were buying. We were the largest procurer. <laughs> we bought billions of dollars a year in pharmaceutical products and in Band-Aids and in, in everything that you need for health. Um, thousands of commodities, literally, and had to negotiate with CEOs uh, of every major pharmaceutical companies. Also did public-private partnerships with uh, with huge companies, including Coca-Cola, for example, on supply chain, who's mm-hmm. better at understanding supply chain than Coca-Cola. So um, not only in the pharmaceutical sector where we were big procurer and, and negotiated, but also did pro- partnerships to deliver healthcare. Same with huge corporations um, like um, like uh, Coca-Cola. So uh, it was a very, very much a learning experience, but one that was very exciting to to engage at that level and understand how companies work, which is not too different. Uh, in the end, everything is run by humans. If you understand human beings, um, uh, you can understand any part of that in the private or public sector. 
everything's run by human beings r- right now. We'll talk a little bit about AI here yeah. in a minute. <laughs> we'll, we'll test that. We'll test that theory. Um, so, so Renovaro, before we get into the technology and, and some of the moves you've been making, uh, the company has not been without its own challenges that have, have, have sort of tested its metal prior iterations of the company, uh, have forced you as its leader to power through some, um, some some unbelievable drama. You can read about it on the internet. I'm not going to get into the details right now, but uh, you know, people familiar with the company know there's been some considerable drama in terms of of uh, the leadership iterations at the company. So I'm 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 curious about um, that element. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm me and our, our listeners we're we're sensing your your passion, your advocacy, your drive. Uh, but when it comes to leadership from an organizational standpoint, especially when there's as I said, considerable drama happening. Um, what what's key to uh, Mark Dibel maintaining and at times correcting the course of a company that you're trying to trying to build? I, I think you know some of the things that I learned um, running massive organizations with enormous political and public uh, um, uh, challenges. As I mentioned, the global fund I took over, donors were running away from because of some internal management problems uh, and inspector general reports that found money missing. Um, imagine what it was like in Washington, D.C., uh, pushing for programs as Democrats, Republicans, everyone's moving around uh, and the presidency uh, changing over the years. These are very complex things. And we were on the front page of newspapers regularly uh, with challenging things. Um, in crises, the most important thing is to stay focused on what your mission is, uh, to remain humble and learn. Uh, as my former boss used to say, when you're in a hole, stop digging, um, which many people have a tendency to do, mm-hmm. uh, and be very transparent. Uh, and this is something I learned in all of the programs I re- I've, I've ever run, and that's true here. Be honest about what your problems are and what you're trying to do, what your solutions are, and be transparent about that. And that's precisely what we've done. And if you maintain those principles, you can manage through anything. Um, but if you see where you're going and what your mission is, you can manage to anything. And that's what we've always done. We've seen the opportunity to the opportunity and the potential to revolutionize healthcare for people um, and the opportunity to, to manage and remain humble and learn and adapt and be transparent. And be transparent with the public, be transparent with the board, be transparent with investors. Um, and if you do those things, you can manage through just about anything. And I think we've done a pr- an awfully good job of doing that as a team. Uh, our board is extremely strong. Um, you know, the former interim CEO of Gilead Pharmaceuticals, Ari Sciences, one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world, who is general counsel before, is our lead independent member. Uh, we have other very uh, uh, impressive board members. Our board chair uh, started Pandora Jewelry. So we have a very strong board that stuck with it. And the scientists who have been engaged have stuck with us from the beginning and continued and powered through and continue to show tremendous results. So stay focused on your outcomes, your results, your mission. Uh, be humble, learn, and be transparent. And that's what we've done. As manufacturers look to automate, scale, and reduce risk in cell therapy process development, there are more options than ever before. Tune in each week to learn about cell processing, manufacturing platforms, and more. 
The pod is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva, a global provider of technologies and services that advance and accelerate the development, manufacture, and delivery of therapeutics, including cell therapies. Check out their resources at Cytiva.com backslash Emerging Biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com backslash Emerging Biotech. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. And I'm going to ask you one more one more question on that. Um, for, for the benefit of, of new, maybe first-time biopharma CEOs who face a, a crisis or, or a challenge, you know, it, it's one thing to have that mindset, to embrace, you know, stop digging, start climbing, surround yourself with the right people, you know, move forward, stay true to the vision. You know, these are like built in in a way, I'm sure, like built into your DNA. You learn that behavior, you get good at it. But there are moments, you know, in, in anyone's mind, no matter how well accomplished you are, no matter how confident you are, there are moments where you go home and you say, you know, I could do a lot of things because I'm accomplished, because I'm confident, I could do a lot of things. Things are going so poorly right now with this thing that I'm trying to do. Maybe I should go do something else. In that moment, you know, when when the fundamentals that you just mentioned are sort of sure, you know, built in, but they don't seem to be don't seem to be doing me any good. Like in this moment, well, give me give, give me some advice. Give, give some advice to the the exec who's like in, in that moment, going, I don't I don't know if I should fold. Look look into your look into who you are and and what you are. I mean, if you get to that level, presumably you you fought a lot. Uh, um, and stay true to who you are. Uh, so you know, I grew up in the Midwest uh, with very, very basic uh, fundamentals that you don't quit. Uh, you look for opportunity and you fix things wherever you can if the mission is right. And um, if the mission is right, um, the, everyone has doubt. If you don't have that doubt uh, and that humility to learn, then you're going to be catastrophic because you'll make bad calls. And then we all make mistakes. We all make decisions at times we wish we had not made. But if you focus on your mission and stay strong and just never give up, um, as long as the mission is right, never give up. As long as the yeah. vision is right, never give up. Find a way. You can always find a way if you remain calm, balanced, willing to learn, uh, and remain transparent. And so I can't, not everyone can do that, to be honest. And not everyone can. Um, uh, and you learn pretty quickly uh, whether you can or not you know, when you're in leadership jobs like that. And I learned that in the there were times of the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief when I was being heavily criticized by former friends and public, um, uh, splashed across front page news articles that my family would see um, for political purposes. Um, and I would think about my lovely life back at NIH, you know, being a... Mm -hmm being a scientist in Tony Fauci's lab and, you know, flying all over the world, giving lectures with none of that, you know, ever possible, mm -hmm. but the, the possibility of say, of contributing to saving millions of lives, you know, you can't, you can't do that. Uh, uh, that's not, that's not who my parents built. Um, so, yeah. but it's different for everyone and everyone needs to find their own energy. For me, it's, you know, what is the mission? And, I will never give up. Credit to uh, I, I like the props to 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 Ma and Pod Dibel. 
<laughs> Very nice. All right. So let, that's a beautiful segue into the mission at, at Renovaro. And when, when I look at your pipeline, the first thing that strikes me before I dig into some of the cool stuff that you guys have been doing, uh, the first thing that strikes me is is its uh, depth and its breadth, right? Like you, you HIV, uh, HBV, infectious disease, oncology. Um, what's the like? What what's the I guess overarching strategy? What's your portfolio strategy there? Yeah, the overarching strategy. And I guess you could look at that and say, wait, that that's too much for a, a startup. But it it's all built around platforms, and platforms mean a lot. Uh, I think to me personally, but I think scientifically and also as a company, because platforms mean you are you are investing in something that can attack multiple different approaches, which gives you multiple markets. It saves multiple uh, people's lives, improves lives in multiple areas, but also gives you multiple markets and multiple commercial opportunities. And so those platforms are hugely important. So we have platforms that then can be basically spun into different diseases. Uh, Right now, by far, our lead candidate is in oncology. Uh, the data there are are super impressive to me scientifically. Um, the woman who conducts those studies, um, uh, Dr. Anna Jewett at UCLA, uh, has been doing them for it and actually is one of the leaders in in cancer therapy. Uh, Matt, do we lose you? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah. Can't we, see, but I can hear it. We've lost power. <laughs> we, we've lost power here in our office. It's a very, very stormy day in Northwest Pennsylvania. This is the second time that we've lost power. Yeah. Um, so I'm, oh, up. Oh, you're back. Our, our power is back on. Can you see me? Yeah, now I can see it. Okay. This, this, uh, there we go. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if that record, I, this records to the cloud, but I'm assuming because we lost power, my, my camera was off for a, a split second there. I yeah. apologize. No it's, problem. Uh, Act of God. It's out of my yeah, control. Yeah. So. <laughs> Nothing you can do. We're, we're experiencing that. I'm in uh, the eastern shore of Maryland right now, and we have that the the side of that storm is hitting us. Yeah, yeah. It's very rare for uh, for us to lose lose power here. It's, it's yeah, extremely windy. Very very windy outside. So I apologize for that no uh, interruption. Um, no but we can splice. We can splice. You you were talking yeah. about the the portfolio strategy. Yeah. So the the. Dr. Anna Jude at UCLA, who's been conducting most of the studies um, and designed the model to study pancreatic cancer, uh, uh, described as the holy great grail of cancer research. So what we've seen, and we started, and I'll get into why we started with pancreatic cancer, um, but it's a platform which should be applied to, which should be uh, as powerful against any solid tumor. Pancreatic is a particularly difficult tumor to combat. Um, and 80 percent of all cancers are solid tumors um, uh, and some extremely difficult to treat. So the reason she describes as a holy grail is we see four things consistently across five different humanized animal studies. Now, human is important because it basically replicates the human immune system rather than guessing if a mouse system is going to translate to a human. Mm -hmm. In five independent studies that she's conducted, uh, we've seen the same thing. Uh, Substan 80 to 90% reduction in size of the tumor, which in and of itself is pretty impressive. But secondarily, when you look inside what's left in the tumor sac, what's there? If it's all tumor, that 10 to 20% all tumor, that's not as good an outcome and it's probably going to come back. <clears throat> what we see, though, is what's inside the tumor sac is effector immune cells that are still there, um, meaning they would still 
uh, correlate with killing, ongoing killing of the cancer. And this is after only one cycle. In normal, in humans, we'd probably do five to 10. Mm-hmm. The third piece of that is in the periphery, in the blood, we see immune, immunostimulation, both at the cell level, but also what's floating in the blood. Really important things like gamma interferon that would correlate with the ability to kill cancer. And we find it in the blood. And the reason that's important is the fourth thing we see is no metastases. Whereas if you in controls, you know, either with our product, but not with um, all the things we do, like the gene therapy, it's a dendritic cell, allogeneic dendritic cell. If you use those without the gene therapy, or if you don't load them properly with the tumor, what's called mock or fake uh, control, there's metastases, the tumor doesn't decrease, and you don't find those same immune uh, correlates in the blood. And that is very powerful. Um, and pancreatic cancer, as I mentioned, is very difficult to treat. We have in- intentionally focused on cancers difficult to treat like pancreatic. And in our clinical trial that we proposed to the FDA, and we've had our pre-IND meeting and formal IND, there was no comment at all, actually, on the clinical trial design. We will include not only pancreatic cancer, but other cancers that are difficult to treat. We haven't selected for sure, but for example, triple negative breast cancer, which is extremely difficult to treat. Uh, Liver cancer, secondary therapy is terrible. Head and neck cancers, there are some cancers that are extremely difficult to treat. But they're still very common. 60,000 people in the US alone are diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And at five years, only 5%, 5 to 10% of them are alive. And if you don't get diagnosed really early, Mm -hmm. only two to 3% are alive. Um, same with triple negative breast and these other cancers. Um, so we will help a lot of people, we believe, if the if the if the data seen in the mice are replicated in humans uh, and improve their lives without toxic chemotherapy. Um, but also, uh, you can move very quickly through the regulatory processes because there's no available therapy. So, for example, in the recent weeks, um, the FDA rapidly approved CAR T therapy for a certain type of cancer with with really not large sample sizes because there's no option. Uh, CRISPR was approved for sickle cell disease with not a large patient population because there's no no good option. And so when you focus on cancers, particularly in the part of the Food and Drug Administration that reviews biological approaches, cell gene immunotherapy, uh, you can move very quickly. And so we anticipate starting clinical trials at towards the end of this coming year, uh, and having enough results by the end of 2025, that again, if the results are replicated, we could actually receive approval uh, by the end of 2025, early 26, with indications for several very difficult cancers. And this is, of course, would need to be proven, but if you can use a product, an immune product, to treat difficult to treat cancers, you should be able to treat relatively easy to treat cancers, Um, and which means you would move into studying in first-line therapy. So, for example, if it works in triple negative breast, you're looking at regular breast, which is a huge population of women who suffer and often need chemotherapy and radiation therapy and radical surgeries. Uh, if you can switch to immune therapy for something like that, imagine what that does. And that's why we have this hope, this vision for a future free of toxic chemotherapy. Now, we're a business too, uh, and that's one of the beauties of how we've structured ourselves. We can 
you know, when you have those types of things off of a platform, you can sell, you can partner, you can build, you can license. There are so many business opportunities that come with that human uh, advantage, that human uh, uh, improvement, that 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 great improvement to people's and families' lives that we're so so committed to. But there's a very real business side to this too, and how we pursue, how we pursued it. And we're doing that similarly with the combination uh, that we hope will 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 be successful in proxy with the AI company JetEQ um, to promote even more advanced ways to diagnose cancer early, uh, to identify recurrence, and the earlier you identify diagnostically or recurrence, the bet more effective your therapy is going to be, and then also to predict uh, success and failure with therapy. Um, which we believe AI will give us the capacity to do uh, those ad, those deep algorithms. So you combine what I describe as bottom up science, what is the biotech side, where we begin with hypotheses, knowledge of the immune system, knowledge of cancers, how you could overcome those with cell gene uh, and immunotherapy, with almost a top down agnostic, massive data set trained algorithms. So we're retraining. We're training data to be used better uh, using uh, algorithms and artificial intelligence, and we're retraining the immune system to respond better. Where those meet, that is a big bang. I mean, that is a tremendous opportunity uh, to rapidly move not only in cancer, but eventually in other other diseases that we're very hopeful will radically change the future and and in in a sense redefine the 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 future of medicine um imagine going being able and this this is we're not there yet but imagine being able to go to a doctor um in the where a blood test in 72 hours or in the future while you're waiting can pick up very early stage cancer or the likelihood that you will develop cancer be and and with that same analysis say this is the best therapy for that. This is unlikely to work. Imagine how that would change uh, not only uh, uh, a person's life and longevity, but just the comfort level. The, the scariest time is when you don't know what you have. You don't know what you're going to be treated with. Um, if, you, if we can undo all that, if we can redo all that, then the future uh, of medicine is radically different and the future of therapy is radically different. And that's the future we see. Uh, we're not there yet, but that's that's where the power of bringing biotech and deep algorithms is so important. Yeah. And to be honest, why I don't think if you you'll see every day a report of a big 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 pharmaceutical company or big biotech buying up or partnering with an AI company. Those are very different cultures. You know, as we talked about there's tech, there's biotechnology and there's technology. Yeah, very different backgrounds, very different mindsets, very different approaches. And we see this with our own people. You know, it takes a little bit of and takes good management to have people understand why they come together. That culture clash is going to be extremely difficult in large companies and large bureaucracies. And if you don't have that management history of how do you bring disparate groups together? How do you bring people who are fundamentally looking at things differently together? Fortunately, I and other managers we have have that background. And we're also small enough that we can capitalize on all of this. And we built the company so that we can functionally spin out 
almost an endless number of subsidiaries, uh, uh, whether they're AI clones or new technologies. Uh, and so the future, both for us and for others, I think is extremely uh, uh, fascinating and a whole new world. It's one of those times in history where technology matched with our current knowledge could lead to a radical jump, a radical leap forward that will improve and the lives of many people and have healthy longevity, not just longer lives, but healthier, happier, more fulfilled lives. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, looking at the landscape of companies, biopharmaceutical companies that are leveraging deep learning, machine learning, you know, AI tools, comp, you know, computational biology tools for lack of a better uh, umbrella term. Um, I, I've had plenty of conversations with super young Silicon Valley, you know, bred biopharma companies that didn't start as biopharma companies. They started as tech companies, yeah, yeah. you know, they had the the tech tools before they decided to develop a, a portfolio or, yeah. or, or a candidate. Um, and then plenty who are, you know, selling applications to biopharma companies. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to age you, Doctor Diable, but you, you know, for a for a guy who's adopting uh, computational and 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 deep learning, uh, you're you're probably on the upper scale, right? Like <laughs> age wise. Well, um, I, I guess the the question would be like, when did you embrace? When did you fully em embrace that? And so, two part question: When did you fully embrace that? And and two, um, do you think it matters? Like, do you think it matters whether a company is like has that kind of died in the wool? Uh, tech application background going into biopharma or uh, a a more traditional biopharma company that grew up in the wet lab and traditional research is now adopting applications to help uh, create efficiencies around discovery and development? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And uh, there's no right answer to that. I think the, the challenge is adapting and learning totally different ways of approaching and thinking about something. And that's extremely difficult. And that's why a lot of mergers have failed historically um, because you're bringing different cultures, different mindsets. And so you really have to have a group that can adapt. So the tech company that we're in the process of, of joining with, JettyQ, is a technology that started with FinTech, um, actually, and, and was adapted to health tech now. Um, it's 10 years old. It's an award-winning technology that uses a multi-omic approach, not a single approach, not just genes, but proteins and how how proteins fold, all in these stacks, extraordinary stacks that have been developed over a decade with deep, deep, deep learning um, with so many different data points. And through a partnership with NVIDIA uh, and their inception program, is they're adding uh, imagery to that. And imagery is a very potent addition and working on pathology additions. The CEO of that company comes from NVIDIA. Um, and so that, that and the technology piece uh, is hugely important, but I'm not this unfamiliar with tech. I mean, I grew up at NIH where tech was, you know, at the forefront of everything. And I also was very involved in AI tech related to biosecurity. I have led um, commissions and uh, put out sets of recommendations. I've now been. Well, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't mean to disparage your tech chops. That was no, 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 no. That was an ageist comment. It was an ageist yeah. comment that I yeah, made. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> Old people can learn too. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I, the, the reason I wanted to make that point is, and this is important about how we've structured ourselves, uh, the, if the proxy goes through, well, well, JettyQ will remain a subsidiary. 
Um, and so they can advance their technology the way technologists would, because you don't want a big company coming in and and telling people who know what they're doing in tech, don't do it that way, do it this way. You're not thinking, you, you want them to be able to move. Same on the biotech side. We don't want tech people saying, oh, that's a, you need to change that and do top-down driven agnostic approaches. No, we have a pretty good idea how the immune system works and we're seeing great results. So both will move uh, independently towards their commercial product. But then the opportunity is to bring them together to develop joint approaches that will leverage and have a multiplier effect in both. And that's where the skills come in and the ability to listen to each other and learn from each other without squashing the uniqueness of the approaches that people are taking. Let those flow, but also let them come together and find new opportunities that will create as I said, almost an endless number of subsidiary opportunities, both on the health tech side, on the biotech side, and then the two together, um, uh, which is the extraordinary uh, piece to me. Um, uh, I, I think those that's where the future lies. There are so many uh, levels of levels, opportunities, applications for for AI in, in biotech. It's impossible to cover them all, uh, you know, in in one conversation. Um, but it's a sexy term right now, right? Like yeah. even folks who are just kind of doing a little bit of dabbling, uh, you know, are, are are leveraging that term. Yeah. Um, a, a friend of mine, a, a guest on the show, Andrew Satz, put it best. I've quoted him uh, before, but he said uh, he said AI and biopharma is like sex and high school he said uh the the kids uh everybody said the, the kids who say they're doing it aren't really aren't and and the kids who really are aren't talking about it right yeah. so what, what do you think um what what do you think about like how, how all in should a, a an emerging biopharma be right now is it something that you know there, there are applications where you would advise like testing the water or or is it your mindset like that if you're not doing this, if you're not applying these tools, um, you, you you put yourself at great peril. Yeah, it's a great question. I love that. I love that quote, actually. <laughs> um, uh, another friend of mine said we need to take the BS out of AI um, mm. uh, because everyone's saying I have AI this, I have AI that, and they don't. And that's why when we when we wanted to engage in deep learning and, and technology, we went with, we 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 identified a group that has a 10-year track record of developing things. And the fact that you start in fintech and move to health tech means a lot to me. I call it Ventech, uh, the Venn diagram, where do these two worlds come together? And then how do you exploit those maximally? Um, and it doesn't mean you can't succeed either doing health tech alone or biotech alone. You can. But if you're really trying to shape the future of medicine, if you're really looking for what will we be doing in 10 years, I don't see how you do it without the two. At the same time, if you don't do the tech well, and if you don't do it right, and you don't have that 10 years of people who and, and building the algorithms, you just have something on a whiteboard. And you have to be very careful about that because similar, and I think about this a lot with gene therapy, think about where 20 years ago, we thought gene therapy was gonna solve everything. Um, Tech is not going to solve that. Health tech is not going to solve everything. The key is finding that then diet, that then health. Where do the two actually come together and create a multiplier effect? And it's not everywhere. 
And I think that's that. So I, which is why I think we'll see a lot of failures, a lot of people saying, talking about what they're doing mm. in these two worlds and bringing them together who don't have very deep tech or, or, or cannot because of the culture and mindset clash has put the two together and don't have the vision for where the two intersect. And if you try to force things together that don't belong together, that's going to fail. So where's the then tech? Where do the two naturally cross, which is why we've structured ourselves so that the the two are in in a sense independent, advancing health tech, advancing biotech, but then bringing them together where that then tech exists. Perfect. Uh, how are you doing on time? You got time for a couple more? Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Uh, the the Venn diagram, um, and I know this is this is the question uh, that's going to make your your IR uh, people a little bit nervous because I'm going to ask you to make a you know at least wax a little bit on a on a on a um, prophetic vision. <laughs> um, so right now, most of the discussions I have with with biopharm companies that are truly engaged in in AI, the conversation is around discovery and and design, molecular design. Um, seems like the low-hanging fruit applications, at least generally speaking. Uh, where do you see AI, even even generally, where is there, in your mind, the most promise for that technology beyond discovery and design, perhaps the clinic, perhaps manufacturing, yep. perhaps even, you know, um, real-world evidence, you know, well after commercialization? Where, where are the opportunities that you kind of have you know, uh, that you're forming up in your mind beyond the early stages. Yeah, I, I think real world evidence is is definitely important. It's not something we're going to focus on at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let me tell you about where we see the opportunity, um, which gets to your some of the comments that you made. You know, finding potential new drug products is definitely um, important. But that to me is is the least um, uh, low hanging fruit. Uh, it's it's a great way to identify a bunch of new products, but you then have to study all those products. Um, and I think if you back up a little bit, and this is what we think is real potential for rapid change, is liquid biopsy, basically blood, we call liquid biopsy, rather than getting tissue all the time, and using uh, algorithms to identify predictors of disease or actual disease much earlier find those markers, and we think that's very possible in a very short period of time, and then identify by following people who have been treated with various things, the ability to predict if a, if a, if a product will, will in fact have its impact on the person. So for example, PD-1 inhibitors, biggest thing in cancer therapy right now, generally a 60% failure rate. What could you predict who's succeeding and who's failing? At fifty thousand dollars of therapy, or somewhere in that range, be pretty good to know if someone's going likely to succeed or fail with that therapy, or any other therapy for that matter. And using uh, deep learning algorithms with the data in them, we I believe should be able to find those markers that predict whether or not a therapy is going to work. And the money's an important piece, but think about the patient who's waiting for six months or 12 months for their images to pick up the fact that their cancer has been growing because the product's not working. So you, that person has basically lost their battle against cancer because we couldn't predict whether or not the therapy was going to succeed. So uh, early diagnosis, prediction of uh, likelihood of success to therapy, and then picking up recurrence early so that you can, and again, predict which therapy is best. 
You combine that with biotech or the ability to study rapidly. And in that finding of what therapy is likely to work, not to work, you'll start picking up signals of what could work in the people who are failing. Um, the other area that is hyper exciting to me is right now we're mostly an off the shelf allogeneic dendritic cell that's loaded, that's genetically modified and loaded with a piece of the person's tumor. So it's very personalized therapy. If you have enough of a data set, you might be able to find common antigens, proteins across uh, multiple tumors, um, either within the same class, say pancreatic cancer, prostate cancer, breast cancer, or um, across multiple tumors that would then create uh, next version products that could be even more effective. So I think the 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 early identification predictability that's a that to me is a low hanging fruit, and the data are telling us it's possible. Especially if you don't just use genes, but if you use a fully multiomic approach, which JDCube has, which which looks at genes, proteins, transgenes, uh, how how proteins fold already in the stacks but then add on to that other modes like imagery, pathology. Uh, then you have such deep learning across so many things that you can start filtering out the noise uh, and really focus. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I totally uh, get the, let to look for the new drug target product. And I think that's a great business that people are working on. I think the business we're focused on uh, could have uh, that then effect, that then tech effect um, in a really, hyper exciting one. Very cool. And, and we'll check with the IR folks later on to make sure that answer was acceptable, Dr. Dibel. <laughs> uh, I am abusing your time. Uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to wrap things up here, but I want to give you an opportunity. And listen, I could talk to you for the rest of the afternoon. I could keep asking you questions as long as you'll sit there, uh, but I won't do that to you. We'll, we'll, we'll do a part two if necessary. Um, but I, I want to give you an opportunity to wrap up with some, uh, some big next steps for Renovara. What are you most excited about that's happening like imminently at the company? Um, I'm hyper excited about the potential for this uh, part, this combination with JetiCube, which of course the shareholders have to decide, which we believe will lead to actual commercial products around diagnosis to begin, uh, early diagnosis to begin, and then predicting therapeutic response and recurrence uh, in this coming year, in 2024. And then, as I mentioned, in 20, by the end of 2024, we believe that you know that we'll have submitted our IND and begun our clinical trials. We're already preparing everything that needs to be done to start that trial as soon as the IND comes in for starting with pancreatic cancer and then other cancers that are difficult to treat. Uh, and if the humans look like anything like the mice, that means we could actually have products to people to change their lives by the end of 25. And 2026 in the market widely available. And then combining those two together, I, I can't tell you how excited I am what the future of medicine will look like. And it reminds me of the early days of PEPFAR when everyone said it's impossible to do antiretroviral therapy in Africa. It's too complicated. There are no systems. All this stuff doesn't exist. There are always a thousand reasons why something won't work. What we see are the handful of reasons why it will work. And that excites me because we have the right team, we have the right board, we have the right management, we have the right scientists to put that all together and to truly uh, be a significant player uh, and are poised to do so to help redefine the future of medicine. 
Fantastic. I, I appreciate the opportunity to to meet you and talk with you. And I'm, I'm excited as well. I'm excited about following the company. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be paying attention. And uh, as I noted, I hope to have you back on the show at some point. Thanks a lot, Matt. Uh, we'll enjoy any opportunity to catch up with you. That's Renovaro Biosciences, Dr. Mark Dybel. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Life Science Connect with support from Cytiva, which puts its support of new and emerging biotechs like Renovaro on full display at its Emerging Biotech Accelerator, which you can visit at Cytiva.com backslash Emerging Biotech. We also offer a trove of supportive content for emerging biopharmas at bioprocessonline.com, where you can find the complete library of the business of biotech and subscribe to our monthly newsletter at bioprocessonline.com backslash B-O-B. Check it out. And in the meantime, thanks for listening.